Well, thank you, Mr. Clerk, and uh, welcome, everybody, to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Uh, I'm Judge Toby Hampson, uh, joined on the panel today by uh, Judge April Wood and Judge uh, Fred Gore. Uh, we do have uh, two cases on the calendar for argument. Um, I will say, obviously, uh, the, the two cases uh, themselves are, are related, um, and we have several other cases on the calendar presenting substantially similar issues. And I mentioned this to the parties beforehand, uh, that to the extent um, there's any uh, overlap between the arguments, I don't think we're going to stand on, on ceremony. Um, and if there's anything specific um, to any of the, the seven sort of related cases that you think we need to know about in those cases, let us, let us, let us know that. Um, we will take just a short break where we'll just sit here at ease while, uh, for, uh, for recording purposes. Um, we won't go into recess or gavel out. Um, uh, so with that, if the, if the parties are ready, we'll hear the first case, which is Wall v. Automani, Inc., 21-4. Uh, uh, Nineteen. I didn't put my readers on. And um, we'll hear from the appellant. Thank you, Your Honor, and good day. Um, my name is Lindsay Cooper, and I'm here today on behalf of the appellant, Auto Money, Inc., and with me is Scott Anderson uh, from Womble Bond and Dixon. Um, on appeal today are three issues. Um, one is the lower court's denial uh, refusing to enforce the choice of venue clause that's contained in the loan agreement. Um, the second issue is the uh, lower court's refusal uh, to enforce the choice of law provision. Um, and then thirdly is the uh, personal jurisdiction issue, which I'll address in those orders. Um, to start with, though, I'd, I'd like to present a theme that you're going to hear both through this argument um, for a wall and also treble field. And it, it's the principle of lex loci contractus. And I'm sure you all have read that all through our briefs, um, but it's particularly important in this case because it is a seminal issue when both analyzing the choice of venue issue um, as well as the choice of law issue. Because that lex loci contractus principle um, is part of both of those analysis. Where is that contract formed? Of particular importance in the Wall case, um, if you look at paragraph 11 um, of the complaint, which I believe is on page 7 of the record, that it is admitted in that that each plaintiff traveled to South Carolina uh, to meet one of Auto Money's representatives um, and while in South Carolina each plaintiff was presented with loan documents to finalize the loan. And, and that's the key point, because what is the finalizing of the loan? It is the execution of the written contract where both parties mutually sent to its terms, to all of the particular terms set forth in the written document. So that admission in the complaint, which is also admitted in the trouble field order, which we'll get to in the second case, is the driving factor on where is the contract entered into. And if this court follows the law that's been established by this court since the 1930s of where the contract is entered into, um, the venue clause as well as the choice of law clause should be enforced um, in line with those line of cases, starting particularly with Bundy. So one of the things I think, you know, 
looking at this case, it, it, and, and where I think some of the tension lies here is that, you know, we're not necessarily looking at, at purely contractual claims, right? This isn't a breach of contract claim governed by the — necessarily governed by the terms of the contract. I think what we'd hear from your colleagues is that, uh, you know, the, these claims sound in sort of uniquely uh, North Carolina statutory, you know, slash policy um, — <clears throat> grounds. And so — and that those statutes themselves kind of have big, broad definitions, right? The usury right. statutes, uh, you know, says no matter where the situs of the contract is, the, the consumer protection statute says, well, if, if anything relating to this — I'm paraphrasing, obviously to, — to, to this loan occurs in North Carolina, you know, this applies. So why — certainly at a 12B6 stage, why doesn't that kind of trump the, the, the choice of law and forum selection clauses. Well, it, it's a good point, and I think it's, it's particularly important not to conflate the two issues, um, uh, where the choice of venue clause is going to be driven by the applicability of uh, uh, Chapter 22B-3. Um, and that contract voids any choice of venue provision um, when the contract um, is entered into in North Carolina. But so, staying with that for a second, yeah. sorry, and I, I, I'm — Cutting you off in the middle of the answer to my, to my yeah. question, I recognize that. But when we talk about 12b-3, improper division, improper venue purely, is, is that really where the forum selection clause falls? Or is, it, or is that more of a 12b-6 argument or, or maybe even a, like a 12b-1 subject matter jurisdiction? No, no. I, I, I definitely believe that that is a 12b-3 argument. I mean, it is a jurisdictional argument based on venue. Um, which is separate and distinct from the failure to state a claim under 12b-6. So, yes, I do think it's important not to conflate the two issues when analyzing it, because as you talked about, the tort claims, which is the choice of law, may sound in, stat in statute, which I will address. But the 12b-3, when you look at whether or not um, 22b-3 applies, the, 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 the statute is very, very, very specific. Um, it, it talks about where the contract is entered into, and, and those are different words. So I think what you're leading to is part of their argument, which we will hear from them, is why should the court not look to the usury statute, right, which is, I believe is the 24-21, um, and, and that, if you read that statute, um, that part of the statute that they rely on governs what, um, what transactions are covered by the usury laws. So it's not necessarily a jurisdictional vesting uh, provision. That part of the statute is saying, what are the bucket of transactions that may fall under uh, North Carolina usury statutes? That statute, if you look at it, it is entitled um, Transactions Governed by This Chapter. Um, and then the leading up into um, that statutory provision, Judge Hampson, if you look at uh, subsection A, it sort of restates that. It states for purposes of this chapter. So it, it's qualifying it. What are the transactions covered by this where we apply other parts of the usury statute? So instead of doing that, they're trying to take a provision from the usury statute and use it as a mechanism to determine for a different chapter in Chapter 22 compared to Chapter 24 um, where a contract was entered into. If you read the language of Chapter 24, 
It says it covers, it, it, it deems the contracts entered into. Not entered into, deemed entered into. It, it's an admitted fact, both in the complaint as well as in the trouble field orders. And I don't think there's any dispute that all of these uh, plaintiffs, they got in their vehicles, they traveled to South Carolina in the vehicle, um, and while they were in South Carolina, you know, the vehicle has to be inspected. So they may talk to Auto Money on the phone, um, and they may generally ask what model, what year, how many mileage, you know, the general aspects of the car. What do you need to, um, what do you need to bring? What's the documentation you need to bring to the store? But at the end of the day, these North Carolina residents made the decision to get in their car um, and drive into South Carolina, uh, bring their car to an auto money store, and, and negotiate a loan at that point, because you can't negotiate a loan. I guess, counsel, I, I hate to interrupt you, but at that point, it just begs me to bring up the issue, um, because be careful of the sword that you swing. It might have a blade on both sides. How do you get around the issue that then, ultimately, to perfect the interest in the vehicle, that auto money comes to North Carolina and subsequently has an agent thereupon or acting on their behalf to effectuate that interest and take possession yes. back. So how, how do you get around saying that they came to us, but then we have to go to North Carolina to get it, and then say there's no contacts here that would avail or require North Carolina law to apply? That's a great point, Judge Gore, because when you look at the Bundy case, um, when you look at the Perkins case, um, when you look at the Parsons case, and they talk about what is the last act to enter into the contract. It is the affixation of the second signature required. Um, in this, both signatures were done in South Carolina. Your question, at that point, the second signature is affixed. You and I have a binding contract. That contract is binding. It's an unsecured contract, but it is a contract. And it is the contract is what all of the case law, Bundy, Parsons, Perkins, even the U.S. chemical case, it all talks about where is the contract entered into for purposes of applying 22B3 for venue. And so let's follow that vein of thought, and I follow the argument that that would address and there would be a waiver by the choice of law in accepting that to be a provision of the contract. For the tort claims, how do you then get to a waiver of North Carolina statutory claims? Is, is, are you saying there's – because I didn't really see much case law establishing a, a party's waiver of their right to make a statutory North Carolina claim. So are you saying that also within mm -hmm. the, the choice of law provision that it also waives someone to bring a claim under North Carolina statutory law as well? Well, yes, but – um, backing up again, just so I understand your question, that um, I'm trying to address two separate issues is, is the enforcement of the venue provision. Um, and I think um, you're, you're going into the land of are we going to enforce um, the North Carolina Chapter 53, which is loan may sell, whereas in, in the usury laws as, 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 as the applicable tort law, if you will, as you all are talking about it. Um, that is what we would what we're arguing to you is, is barred um, by the choice of law provision. Um, each and every one of these plaintiffs um, 
side, but the choice of venue and the choice of law provision, Judge Gore, are contained in the same contractual provision. Um, that provision, by the way, is not hidden. Um, our lending contract is two pages long. The top half of the first page is our truth in lending disclosures that are required uh, by both uh, South Carolina, because we're a regulated lender in South Carolina, we have to comply with all lending laws in South Carolina. Um, they require us to disclose the interest rate right up front at the top. Um, they require us to disclose the amount of finance charged, um, and, and they require us to disclose the term of the loan. And like the truth and lending standard, they're all up front in a big block. The choice of venue and the choice of law provision is the next paragraph after that. It's literally right under the truth in lending on the first page. Each and every plaintiff is required to initial that, to make sure they recognize and acknowledge that it is there um, and, and that it should be applicable, it is applicable, um, to their loan. But when you get to the choice of law provision, and, and, and this is a great time for us to broach it, is I would implore the court to really read closely the Western Sky opinion. And plaintiff's counsel has relied on it um, quite, uh, they, they've relied on it significantly. Um, you know, that was a case that had to do with a lender that was lending out of a tribal um, reservation from South Dakota, I believe, and, and it involved loans being made to North Carolinians. Um, that case was brought by the Attorney General um, at that time. So. When you read that, and if you look at paragraphs 34 to 41 of the Western Sky opinion, they really dig into um, the choice of law issue. And, 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 and the business court judge in that opinion, I believe his name was McGuire, um, he penned the exact standard that we're auto money is asking you to apply. One, does the, um, is there, a nexus between the chosen law and the transaction. Um, again, I would tell you there is a significant nexus because these people drove to South Carolina. We're regulated in South Carolina. We report to the South Carolina Department of Consumer Finance. We have to comply with South Carolina law. Every loan we make, law requires us in South Carolina, it has to be made at our store. We are not an internet lender. We do not send loan applications by email. We do not send loan documents by email, fax or otherwise. Everything under South Carolina regulation has to be done at that licensed store. Each store has its own separate lending license. So, so by counsel, putting in South Carolina- Counsel, on that point though, look, uh, are there any advertisements or um, I guess, any type of advertisements, internet or publications that are sent to North Carolina? Um, yes. Okay. I mean, certainly we have a, a website. Um, certainly they do advertisements. Um, and I believe during the time of Ms. Wall, um, you know, they may have, I, I can't remember exactly, I'd be speculating at that point. But from the record, I believe certainly there was, there was an internet at that point in time. Um, and, and, and certainly, they did other advertising. So that, that's not this. Do you know whether there were any that were targeted specifically to North Carolina? Um, in the plaintiff's brief, there was one that they referred to. 
Um, that one was put out in 2014 and 2015 um, that well predated um, the claims in this case. Um, since that time, as evidence in Ms. Derbyshire's affidavit, the website actually discloses that um, lending in North Carolina is illegal. You know, you have to come to South Carolina. So, I mean, full disclosure, it's not targeted, but there was some advertisements that plaintiff counsels did find from uh, 2000 and 2015. But I want to get back to the, um, the Western Skycast, okay? And when I was talking about that, I, I talked about was there that reasonable connection. I was going on and on about our contacts and why it's reasonable. Um, but, but the second part of that test um, states that, and, and I'm going to butcher this, I think, if I don't read it. Um, the second part of that test is the chosen law does not violate a fundamental, uh, fundamental policy of the state of otherwise applicable law. And, and that's the key right there, otherwise applicable law. Um, so we have tried to break it down in our brief, and how do you analyze that? Um, does North Carolina have a public policy um, against high-rate loans? Um, the answer to that is yes. Um, is it a fundamental public policy when the contract is entered into outside of South Carolina borders? Um, the case law has said no. And the reason is, is that phrase, otherwise applicable law, because the law that governs a contract is the law in the state in which it was entered into. And this is that theme that I opened up with, that the Lex Loci concept runs through both the venue and the choice of law. To determine the law of the otherwise applicable state, the courts, and this turns to, um, I believe, the case law for those line of cases is the Barnes Group, Bear versus Bear, um, as well as the Clarkson financial case. But Western Sky, Judge McGuire also looked to that. Judge McGuire said, where was the contract entered into, actually? And he goes through a factual analysis, I believe in paragraph 37 of his opinion. And he says, this is what happened. Um, they contacted um, the, the lender. They discussed the loan. They emailed the borrower an application. The borrower filled out the application and emailed it back to the lender. Um, the lender then called up the borrower while they're sitting in South Carolina. They negotiated the specific terms of the loan. Um, they approved the loan on the phone. That's very important. They approved the loan on the phone after seeing the application. And then they emailed them the final loan contract. And what Judge McGuire said is because all of that negotiation happened and because they sent them a finalized loan agreement, that the terms were set with specificity, rate, term, amount, approval. All of that was done over the phone. So when the contract was sent to the borrower in North Carolina and the borrower affixed their signature, that was a firm offer. 
it, you know how contra just contract 101, meeting of the minds as to essential provisions, amount, timing of payments, interest rate, other terms, uh, material terms of the loan. Judge McGuire said that was all done, so the contract was entered into in North Carolina. So turning to the, to the well, I guess particularly the order in the, in the wall case, um, you know, I keep coming back to the, 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 the posture in which the, this case was uh, in the trial court, and it's 12B, right? And obviously maybe a little different for 12B2 than, than 12B6, but, you know, it, you know, it strikes me even, even applying, you know, were we to, to find, you know, the business court's decision in Western Sky persuasive and, and, and look at it that way, that there could still be some factual questions which could, which might be better resolved at summary judgment. And, and as I look at the order in, in, in Wall, it, it's, and, maybe, and again, different than other cases maybe, but, but in Wall, apart from the 12B2, it seems like the trial court was pretty much doing a pretty rudimentary venue analysis, right? You've got a plaintiff in Richmond County, therefore venue is proper there, right? And, and B, that under 12B6, you know, the plaintiffs have at least stated a claim that gets them past, uh, you know, preliminary motion to dismiss. Who knows what happens after that? Um, you know, we, I guess, w would you speak to that? Do you think if you, sure. if you were, I guess maybe to put it another way, if, if we were to agree with the trial court, w would that foreclose you all, you all from bringing these arguments at a summary judgment stage, for example? Well, I, I would suppose I tell you who coaxed the order that you all were eventually enter into. Um, but I would say that at this stage of the pleading stage, um, if you read um, the um, complaint and you read the affidavits um, of the plaintiffs, th th there's, there's no allegation um, that, that those provisions, the venue provisions, have to be um, um, a product of fraud or overreaching or unjust. Um, and they have to be in bad faith under Bundy, which is there was an intent to subvert something. Um, you know, I don't think that can be there under the Carnival Cruise case. Um, but then when you turn over to the choice of law, the standard is, is there a nexus, right? And would it violate a fundamental public policy of the otherwise applicable state? I mean, that is the analysis. So if you decide the Lex Loci, it just falls out from there. So what else could they plead? There is no pleading that there was fraud in the inducement as to the choice of law or choice of venue. There is no pleading that we misrepresented it. There is no allegation in an affidavit um, that that occurred. Those affidavits, of, particularly if you just look at Ms. Wall, right, she talks about how did she hear about auto money. I think she says she heard about it from a friend. She went on the Internet. She called us. We talked to her. She drove to South Carolina. I mean, there's no other pleading that somehow there's bad faith going on here. So if you take the posture of the case where it is now, Judge Hampson, and you look at what the record is, there's nothing to support those legal standards. Um, I, I would contend that. I mean, there will be argument that we're doing something bad. or we're do But what does the record say? What does the complaint say? It's void of it. So I would say, yes, you could remand it, but what did Parsons do? And Parsons is a choice of venue case, um, and, and it, it, there was an issue about the choice of law, but the court never got that because it ruled on the choice of venue. Um, this court in Parsons 
it remanded uh, in the case, the lower court, ordered it to, to be dismissed, and then to be refiled um, in South Carolina, and then that court should make the, dis- the findings of fact in the correct venue. So as we sit here today with our record, you know, I feel that if you are not willing to rule on the issues, which I would say, particularly with the choice of law, you should. Judge Gore, you know this. You're sitting in front of the Title Max versus Snipes case, um, which is the exact issue where they overturned an arbitration award as clear error. Um, we're here on a different standard. There's de novo. So, you know, you're looking at it with the fresh eyes. You don't have that skewed standard of review. Um, and and, and it, it will resolve as they will tell you thousands of cases. Um, and and it, it is all driven by where was that contract entered into? I mean, the, the law has been there, particularly on the venue side, um, since, you know, the 1930s that if there is a mandatory, which it is, it says exclusive twice in our provision. If it's exclusive, you should enforce it. They've got a heavy burden, and you should only do it in the most exceptional circumstances. And I would just say that burden is not met on this record. It should be dismissed and told to bring in South Carolina. And if the South Carolina court decides to apply North Carolina law, um, it should. But I do want to go back to your statutory tort claim for choice of law. Um, when you look at a statutory tort, when the court has analyzed usury claims under Chapter 34, that line of cases um, that I spoke about in the usury case, particularly um, the Clarkson case and the Barnes case, um, on the choice of law, they, they also apply lex loci on whether um, North Carolina usury statute applies, because usury is by nature statute, right? Legislature intends it to do that. So they decided that um, under the Lex Loci, if it's South Carolina is the otherwise applicable law, then, 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 then the choice of law is enforceable. Western Sky did it. Parsons did it. So the only claim when you become a statutory tort, which may pull it out of the Lex Loci contractus analysis, is the UDTPA claim. Right, which is the Unfair Trade Practices Unfair Trade Practices Act under Chapter 75. But the problem there is what is that claim based upon? That claim is admitted um, in their brief, I believe on page 27 and 28, is a violation of Chapter 53 is a violation of Chapter 75. A chapter of 24 under Odell case is a violation of Chapter 75. Um, so if you decide, like Western Sky with Chapter 53, and if you decide usury, like with Odell, then there is no UDP claim. It can't stand on its own the way it's pled. So that, that's a little bit, you understand, if there's no underlying claim, there is no UDP claim. So it really starts and ends again with the Lex Loci Contractus. Um, but, but, but what gives rise to the UDP claim? I think we all sitting here can agree it's the execution of the contract. They plead in paragraph 23 in their second cause of action for the UDP claim that 
among other things, the violation is the misrepresentation that we didn't tell them it was an illegal loan. That was done at the time the contract was signed, right? We didn't disclose that. You know, UDPA can apply to um, miscommunications or misrepresentations. It was not telling them that. But besides that, it, it's, it's the underlying violation. If you look at the Cygrip case that we cited, which was a, um, uh, basically a UDP claim based upon a misappropriation of trade secrets, the court enunciated very clearly that when a UDP claim is based on contract, it either occurs upon the execution of the contract or the breach of the contract. Um, Am I going into my rebuttal? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure you reserve rebuttal. So you've got, you've got 250 okay, left right. in this argument. So. so what the court said then is um, the, the, it either arises on the execution of the contract or the breach of the contract. They're not talking about any breach here. It's all about the execution. It is the charging. If you read their complaint, it's the charging of the rate. It is the binding them to the use related happens on the execution. So I would even argue if you apply the lex loci delicto, which you should not, I don't, I, I don't want you, but I need to talk about it because they talked about it, that even if applied, if you look at the side grip case, it, that happens on those two occurrences. I do want to back up, and I'm sorry, I'm going to shift gears on y'all again. I am going to go back to the usury statute being a deemed agreement um, under Chapter 22B3. And because I think there is a little bit of a difference in those, yes. those two statutes, perhaps, with the, where, where the usury statute speaking to the, the agreement at issue and the, the Consumer Protection Act almost sort of being more broadly applicable to, to any activity. Yes, exactly. And it's what is the activity here? It was the alleged misrepresentation at the formation and the charging of the usurious rate. So you're absolutely correct. I would agree with that. But the one other reason from legislative purpose, you should not apply Chapter 24 to Chapter 23, is if you look down that statute, remember I talked to you, it's limited for purposes of this chapter. If you go to subsection E of that statute, um, it talks about loans that says um, any person who requires by contract or assignment the right to a loan but what it says, it says, who benefits from the laws of the state by having the loans secured by real property located in this state is deemed to have consented to the courts of this state um, and jurisdiction over such person under this chapter and for any claim related to the loan. So if I had a mortgage on real property, this statute would cover me. If they wanted it to apply to title loans, they would have said so, but they didn't. So when you strictly construe statutes under Mitchell, and it says deemed entered to, and 23 says it has to be entered into under the 70 years of case law, those two issues should not be conflated. And you would think that the legislature would have um, drafted it such, because they certainly did it for real estate. But they excluded that, and under the Carpet case, you should not read into the statute on a novel theory. Thank you, Your Honor. All right. Thank you. And obviously, we'll hear from you again uh, in the in the next case. And so, feel free to make any uh, additional points there too. Um, with that, we'll hear from the appellee.
Good afternoon, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the Court. My name is James Fauché. I, along with Jeff Peraldo, I represent the plaintiffs in all of these cases that are uh, appearing before you today. I, I want to start with what the claims are that are being made in these cases, because I think that is key to all of the analysis on the personal jurisdiction issue, the choice of law issue, and the forum selection clause issue. And all of these claims are based on North Carolina statutes. North Carolina statutes that expressly state what types of transactions they apply to. While the general rule for determining the law that affects a contract may be where did the last act necessary to form that contract occur, that is expressly not the law in North Carolina with regard to consumer loans. Under Chapter 24, the legislature has provided expressly that where a loan is preceded by communications either into North Carolina by a lender or communications from North Carolina into another state by a borrower, that that loan contract is deemed to have been entered into in North Carolina. And, and that goes, to, I think, to the fundamental tension that, that I was discussing with your colleague um, before, is that, you know, I think what we hear is that, you know, your clients went to South Carolina, signed, uh, signed a contract, initialed the clause that says South Carolina law applies. And, the, and so I think the fundamental argument is, well, if South Carolina law applies, North Carolina law doesn't apply. So you cannot bring these statutory claims. You have to seek relief under South Carolina law, under the, the, the choice of law provision. That, that's sort of the fundamental tension. And so the crux of the case, I think, in a lot, a lot of ways is, you know, do, do the sort of the broader North Carolina statutes somehow trump uh, a, a choice of law clause entered into in a contractual relationship? Certainly. And the North Carolina legislature was very clear in 53190 that they want to apply the Consumer Finance Act to every tra consumer transaction where any act happened in North Carolina. And they provided an exception to that, not for cases where there's a choice of law provision, but only for cases where all contractual activities take place outside, entirely outside of North Carolina. And there are a number of reasons why a choice of law provision cannot apply in the face of that clear, mandatory, statutory directive. The first is the public policy. North Carolina case law is clear, and Judge McGuire uh, in the Western Sky case, Judge Eagles in recent cases affirming arbitration awards, talks about this, that North Carolina courts will not enforce a choice of law provision that violates a uh, fundamental public policy of North Carolina. And the legislature has expressly made applying North Carolina lending laws to North Carolina borrowers a fundamental public policy through 24-2.1G. Secondarily, as Judge Biggs held in confirming an arbitration award, that where there is a statutory choice of law, as it were, a statutory directive that North Carolina lending law applies to this type of transaction, you don't need to do any further choice of law analysis. The statute applies. So the tension here is, can a, can a lender who is doing significant business in North Carolina, as the evidence before the courts below in the findings that were made as to personal jurisdiction shows, I mean, they are 
advertising in North Carolina through, through the steals and deals mag, you know, circular that circulates, directly soliciting North Carolina residents by sending letters as they did to Miss Troublefield, making phone calls uh, into North Carolina, receiving phone calls from North Carolina. So, but how much can we, just from a procedural standpoint, given that we are, again, sort of at the 12B standard, when we're looking at this case through the lens of the choice of law provision, separately the form selection clause, to what extent can we rely on the findings of fact that seemed limited to deciding the 12B2, right? Because there's two different, we're dealing with a couple of different standards here in, in Certainly, Your Honor. And, and I believe on the 12B6 issue, you look at the complaint and you deem the allegations in the complaint as true. And in the complaint, we alleged that these activities that are enumerated in 53190A occurred with regard to these plaintiffs. So, and so focusing on the allegations of the complaint, um, I mean, you allege allegations of the uh, or violations of the statutes, but um, but where do you where do you actually allege any kind of uh, true fraudulent behavior, unfair bargaining power, specifically in the complaint that might apply to this? So I think the unfair bargaining comes up with regard to the forum selection clause, and I think that the court can look at the evidence in the record when when assessing the determination of forum selection clause, and I think the unfair bargaining you can see the timing of when they introduced these different provisions into their loan agreements. And they talk about this, I believe it's at page 11 in their brief, where when they wanted to start having a forum selection clause, they just added it. When they wanted to start having a, an additional waiver, they just added it. These are, these are take it or leave it contractual provisions. Judge Futrell found this to be a, a contract of adhesion. There's no meaningful. Well, in the, not, not in the wall case, though. Not, not in the wall case. Because I mean, the, the Troublefield case, which we'll talk about next, the, sure. it's a much more. In the wall case, the, the judge didn't make findings. Findings weren't requested on the forum selection issue, and she did not make findings that were related to the forum selection issue directly. But I think you can look at, they attached all the agreements into, in their pleading. It's the exact same forum selection clause that is placed in front of a borrower who has already been told on the phone when they contact them from North Carolina that you can get a loan if you come down here. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and clearly you allege the contract in, in your complaint, so I think it's proper for, for a court to, to actually go and look at the document it, it itself as alleged. So, Certainly. So I think that, I, I'm, but then I'm struggling with, like, where do we, how can we look at anything out beyond that? Like, look at these affidavits, look at the... Uh, the advertising and that kind of stuff, or, or, or where can we find that alleged in your complaint? Specifically as to the forum selection clause, I think what you look at is the complaint, and I think you can look at the, the uh, documents, the agreements that were produced by the defendant in op as part of their motion to see, all right, what is this forum selection clause? And you can, you know, and again, you need to think about it in the lens that which you're viewing Judge Layton's order which is abuse of discretion. Uh, there's been some dispute in the briefing about what is the appropriate standard to review a motion to dismiss denying a forum selection clause, and it is abuse of discretion. So, well, abuse of discretion would be for sort of true, like, you know, venue, right? But, like, convenient forum, that kind of thing. I mean, surely the, the dealing with contractual 
provisions revealing the, you know, the, the law applicable to a form selection clause, why, why would that not be a question of law reviewable de novo? So I think if you look at the cases the, the parties have cited, there's a distinction between interpretation of a forum selection clause, what, what, whether it's permissive or mandatory is the typical interpretation that the cases look at, or whether it's simply a denial of a motion to dismiss on the basis that the forum selection clause is unenforceable. It's an enforceability issue. And the court, this court most recently, just in December, set forth that the standard, and that's in the uh, Shure case, uh, set forth that the standard for reviewing a motion to dismiss for improper venue involving a forum selection clause is abuse of discretion. And that goes back to Judge Eagle's opinion in the appliance sales case in 1994 when this court was first starting to grapple with forum selection clauses. They had been blessed in commercial cases in 1992, I believe, and then the appliance service case came before the court in 1994, and they had to figure out what is the standard we're going to apply if a court sets a, doesn't enforce a forum selection clause. And Judge Eagles wrote in that case that because it's such a fact-intensive, uh, depends on the facts and circumstances of each particular case, that it ought to be an abusive discretion standard. Judge Hunter in the SED uh, Holdings case in 2016 reached the same conclusion, talking about the standard of review for denial of a motion to dismiss based on a forum selection clause is abuse of discretion, and the Assure case reached the same conclusion just in, at the end of last year. So we think it is a abuse of discretion standard, and where the court here in the Wall case didn't make findings that were particular to the forum selection clause, that, that issue. The standard is that the court is to assume that the findings were supported by uh, evidence in the record. And that's where, where you can look at the record and see that all these allegations in the complaint about the phone calls beforehand, the advertisements, the solicitations, the use of the North Carolina DMV, the setting it up so that borrowers can make payments in North Carolina and come back, that can show the general unfairness or unreasonableness of allowing auto money to do all of this business in North Carolina. These loan transactions as, you know, essentially are originated by communications that tr trigger 53190, trigger the act. The only thing that happens in South Carolina is the signing of documents. And then... Now, counsel, going back to your unfair bargaining power, wouldn't that presume that the consumer wouldn't be able to get a loan in North Carolina? I mean, that, that they have no alternative but to enter into this contract once they drove down to South Carolina, had their car inspected. They didn't have any choice but to go ahead and enter it and initial and sign that South Carolina was the, the state that was the appropriate venue and had jurisdiction. Because the reason I'm asking that is because you, you seem to say that that's what triggers the statute for the consumer finance that should apply here. But your clients actually drove to South Carolina, afforded them, you know, went down there, initialed, said, yes, we understand that everything's occurring in South Carolina. We're going to consent to jurisdiction being in North Carolina, and we agree the proper venue is here. So why shouldn't they be held to that uh, bargain that they made when they entered the contract in South Carolina? Because the North Carolina legislature in, in 53190 and in 24-2.1 has said that we are going to apply North Carolina law 
to loans entered into by North Carolina residents under certain circumstances. And one of those circumstances is where the, the occurrences in 53190A happen, contractual activity happens in part in North Carolina, or under 24-2.1 where, there where there's communications that we now know from the record did occur, uh, the North Carolina legislature has made that policy determination that we are, North Carolina courts are going to apply North Carolina lending laws to North Carolina residents, even where ordinary commercial uh, doctrines as far as determining choice of law might otherwise say that South Carolina law applies. I think in the commercial context, it would be different. Uh, but in the, this consumer context, specifically these loans that the legislature has elected to regulate in this way, that, that where the contract sign was signed is not the touchstone that determines the choice of law. It's, the, it's not the last act analysis, it's the, it's the any act analysis. Um, and with regard to the 12B6 issue, uh, I believe it was Judge uh, uh, Hampson touched on this, that what we have here is the pleading stage. They haven't even filed an answer telling us which of our allegations about their activities they admit and which they deny. And they, this choice of law issue, particularly where our claims are based on statutes that rely upon there have been, having been contractual activity occurring in North Carolina, the facts of each individual case are going to matter, which, which makes a enforcement, uh, you know, a 12B6 ruling on choice of law particularly difficult given that, it's, that those fact-bound issues. Um, and we have the North Carolina public policy that suggests where these statutes are triggered that the, the choice of law provision is not valid and is not enforceable. So, counsel, um, hearing that argument, do you concede that if we were talking about a verbiage argument or an allegation on the four corners of the document, would you concede that that would be controlled by the choice of law uh, provision in the contract? If this was simply a, a breach of contract action, um, well, I still think that the, um, the North Carolina statute says what it says. And if it was had to do with some activity in North Carolina, I still think the statute would be triggered by, but, but I think that would be a, a breach of contract claim would have a different analysis than a statutory claim. Well, let's say instead of a breach of contract, what if we're um, at an ambiguity in a contract, something on the four corners of the document, not a residual interest rate issue or consumer protection. What if we're arguing the interpretation of the verbiage on the four corners of the document? What law controls? Well, I think that you'd have to look at what that interpretation goes to. Because if it goes to a uh, one of the issues contemplated by the North Carolina Consumer Finance Act, for example, whether they can enforce that loan in North Carolina in violation of the act. I think that the North Carolina uh, Consumer Finance Act uh, paradigm would still apply. If it's just a straight breach of contract claim, uh, I think that would be a different situation to your point. I think that might be, that might be more of a traditional breach of contract analysis. But these are statutory tort claims. These are not breach of contract claims. I want to address all three of the, um, the, the motions that they've made and they have appealed. Um, with regard to the personal jurisdiction motion, 
uh, I want to direct the Court's attention specifically to the recent decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that's addressed in our briefing, Ford Motor Credit. It has been auto money's argument, and I don't know that they really touched on personal jurisdiction much in their argument today, that there must be a direct causal relationship between auto money's activities in North Carolina and each individual claim. And the Court in Ford Motor Credit specifically clarified or, or that the, the law is not that it must be causally related. It's just it must be related to. And in that case, those were transactions involving Ford had not occurred in the states that were where they were being sued, but they had engaged in voluminous other commu- you know, uh, contracts and business in that state. And the court found in that case that jurisdiction satisfied due process, even though the specific activities with regard to the transactions and those product liability claims had not occurred in Montana and South Dakota. Your, your, your personal jurisdiction assertion here is, is based on specific jurisdiction? It absolutely is based on specific jurisdiction. But I think what the court in Ford Motor Credit, uh, the, 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 the Ford versus Montana case, clarified is that it, this does not have to be a but-for causation analysis of auto money's activities in North Carolina leading to each specific claimant's claim. It is enough that each specific claimant's claim is related to the business activities that auto money clearly is engaging in in North Carolina which is, as we've discussed, advertisements, solicitations of North Carolina residents with regard to every single one of these transactions using the North Carolina DMV, receiving millions of dollars in payments from North Carolina, uh, and threatening and repossessing vehicles in North Carolina. And I think it's significant that this evidence doesn't just come from affidavits from the claimants. We have an affidavit from a former auto money employee we have an affidavit from their, one of their repossession agents. We have an affidavit from the company that helps them perfect their security interests using the North Carolina DMV. And we have an affidavit from MoneyGram, which is the remote payment method that allows people to make payments in North Carolina, which are then received by auto money in South Carolina. So as to the personal jurisdiction issue, we believe the evidence is overwhelming that they are subject to personal jurisdiction in North Carolina, and that, that issue should be affirmed. Touching on the 12B6 issue, there, there are really two arguments that they have made below uh, and that they in, involve cases they cite to in their briefs even before this court. We've talked a lot about the choice of law issue. They also talk about the dormant commerce clause issue. And I want to make sure the court is aware of the additional authority that we submitted, the Weissman case recently from the Third Circuit Court of Appeals which reversed one of the leading authorities that they relied on for this idea that the Dormant Commerce Clause prevents North Carolina lending law from applying to a transaction where the paperwork was signed at a brick-and-mortar location outside of the state. What was at issue in that case is the state of Pennsylvania regulating title max for loans made to Pennsylvania residents in Virginia and in Delaware. And the court made clear that given recent Commerce Clause jurisprudence from the Supreme Court that there is no Commerce Clause issue there at all because the, the, the Commerce Clause only applies where the transaction to be regulated is wholly extraterritorial. And indeed, the only things that were happening in Pennsylvania in that case were collection of payments in Pennsylvania or made from Pennsylvania and the use of the Pennsylvania DO, the Department of Motor Vehicles to perfect security interests. We have much more here. We have 
pre-loan communications that are specifically enumerated in North Carolina statutory law that we allege occurred here and trigger North Carolina law. And to, although it's not directly relevant to the 12B6 issue, we now have affidavits that show our allegations to be meritorious. And that should give the court comfort in affirming the 12B6 order on both on choice of law and on the dormant commerce clause. The um, final issue with regard to the forum selection clause, um, again, I, I think the touchstone here is the statutes under which we've brought these claims. And these are not contractual claims. These are statutory claims. So when, when we talk about the, the forum selection clause and whether this was properly brought in North Carolina versus South Carolina, uh, do you agree that that's a, a 12B3 issue, or, or does it relate to, a, to either a subject matter jurisdiction, or is it more of a 12B6 issue? Well, interestingly, in this, in this case, in Wall, they, bought it, they brought it as a 12B3 issue. And in Troublefield, they argued it as part of a 12B6 issue. And I think the case law is kind of mixed that it can be argued as either one. But I think under either, you come to the same analysis about whether those types of provisions are enforceable. So, so what do we do in this case where, in the Wall case in particular, where the, the analysis under 12B3 is simply, well, you've got a plaintiff that, that lives in Richmond County, therefore venue, you know, broadly speaking, is, is proper in, in Richmond County. It wasn't really an issue of North Carolina versus South Carolina. The trial court wasn't really looking at that in its order in the Wall case. It was looking just purely venue. Is this the right county? Sure. How do we deal with that? Well, and I think, one, this clearly is the right county because there is a resident of Richmond County. But they didn't ask her, they didn't ask Judge Layton to make findings about their forum selection clause issue. If you look at the transcript, they didn't ask her to make findings about that. Um, and they brought it, they, choo they chose in that case to bring it as part of their 12B3 motion. And where a court is not asked to make findings of fact, the reviewing court, and this is the Robinson and Lawing case cited in our brief, is um, where findings of fact are not requested, it is presumed that the judge, upon proper evidence, found facts to support his or her judgment. So I think, one, you have to give uh, a presumption to her order that it was based on proper facts. And then you have to apply the abuse of discretion standard and determine whether, given all of the facts that were in front of her, um, which I think you can, you can lean a little bit on some of the findings that were made pursuant to personal jurisdiction, but you can also look at the complaint and you can look at the documents they produced, whether she abused her discretion in uh, refusing to dismiss the case on the base of, basis of the forum selection clause. And there are, there are two separate bases on which she could have grounded that decision. We've talked about the 22B3 issue, and I want to touch on that just briefly. But there's also common law grounds on which a court can refuse to enforce a forum selection clause. On the 22B3 issue, the 24-2.1, which is the governs which transactions are governed by the, by the usury statute. In the opening paragraph, talks about for the purpose of this uh, chapter. It doesn't say for the purpose of this chapter only. It says for the purpose of this chapter. To the extent that you need to determine what the legislature meant by that chapter or whether it meant to apply it narrowly or broadly, 
look at 24-2.1G, which specifically provides that uh, where, where the where if there's any provision of this chapter, and this is the last sentence of that section, it says any provision of this section which acts to interfere in the attainment of that public policy, which is the public policy that North Carolina law should be applied to North Carolina borrowers, that, that, that provision should have no effect. So this legislature has told you how to interpret, how broadly to interpret Chapter 24, and what they've told you is if we messed something up here, interpret it as broadly as you can because we want to protect North Carolina borrowers. So based on the, the, the 24 having determined the loan to have been made in North Carolina, 22B3 applies and the provision is, is void. Council, is there, is there an argument, um, which I know your argument is not to reverse, but based upon the lack of meat on the bone for findings in the order, is there an argument where there could be a, a necessity to vacate and remand for further findings in this case? I think that's what you should do if you're concerned about the lack of findings. Okay. Despite the fact that they did not request findings, if you believe to perform your task of reviewing her order and applying the abuse of discretion standard, if you need findings from her, I think that's what you should do is, is remand it and ask her to make findings. Um, the, the, uh, the second basis on which the, the um, form selection clause can be set aside are the common law bases, which are really set out in, in three cases that, or is, uh, excuse me, in two cases that we discuss in our briefing, the Perkins case uh, and the SED Holdings case. And the Perkins case was uh, talked about, about a bunch of different things, and it talked about primarily unequal bargaining power, unreasonable under the circumstances, unreasonable and unjust, or contravene a strong public policy, particularly of the forum in which the suit is brought. And it is without a doubt that the forum, the, the, the strong public policy of the forum in which these suits were brought in North Carolina is to enforce North Carolina lending laws with regard to North Carolina borrowers. So I think that public policy grounds alone um, and, and there is a finding in, in Judge Layton's order about the express public policy of North Carolina, I believe, that um, that can be a basis alone to refuse to enforce the forum selection clause. Second, the unreasonable and unjust. And I think you can look at this in a couple of ways. Um, one, it is unreasonable for auto money to, in the face of clear statutes under Chapter 53 and Chapter 24, to do things that subject themselves to that statute and then after they've gotten the North Carolina resident to travel down to them to have them sign a contract which signs away their rights if enforced to file suit in a North Carolina court for violations of North Carolina law. Uh, I think you can also look at the unequal bargaining power. These are not form, these are not contracts that the, they get down there and they're negotiating the terms, they're negotiating the rate. This is phone call, yeah, you can get a loan. They come down there, this is it. And you can tell that this is it and this is a take it or leave it contract because it's all the same form based on the timing. When they, once they added the forum selection clause, everybody's got the same forum selection clause. Once they added the additional waiver, everybody's got the same waiver. And I think the SED Holdings case, which is the second case that talks about this, and if you look at the timing that the 
the, the, the Supreme Court first announced that we're going to allow forum selection clauses in commercial cases. Then the legislature comes out with 22B3, which says that they're not allowed in, non -cons in, in consumer loans. Um, Judge Hunter, looking at the, the case law and looking at the statute together, announced the status of the law as this, which is that forum selection clauses in North Carolina are generally disfavored against public policy and void and unenforceable unless they appear in non-consumer loan transactions. That's the SED Holdings case at page 637. And he broke down these into, into really four different grounds. Enforcement would be unreasonable or unjust. I've covered why that's the case with regard to these plaintiffs. They're invalid for reasons of fraud or overreaching. We're not alleging fraud here, to a question raised, I think, by uh, Judge Wood earlier. We're not alleging fraudulent activity. But we are, this is overreaching. That They are, in the face of subjecting themselves to North Carolina law, after they've had these communications, adding this provision. And clearly, they just started to add it once they knew these cases were coming, that my firm was handling these kind of cases. And then the last round would be the strong public policy. So I think, to, to, to summarize, these are statutory claims. These are not breach of contract claims. And with regard to these specific statutory claims, Judge Biggs, Judge Eagles in affirming arbitration awards have provided that the choice of law provision is not enforceable as to these folks. Uh, in arbitrations that, that have been held on similar cases, Judge uh, Justice Hunter and Justice Edmonds have both heard these cases and found that the choice of law provision does not apply in, in the face of these statutory claims. The, the issue before this court is whether auto money can do voluminous business in North Carolina and yet contract their way around the application of clear, mandatory statutory law. We, we urge the court to find that they cannot. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. Um, with that, uh, we'll we'll treat that case as submitted. Uh, we'll take we'll sit at ease while we uh, switch over on the recording, and then uh, we'll move to the travel field argument. Obviously, we'll give you plenty of leeway to address anything you want to uh, in, in that case. Um, so, with that, Mr. Clerk, we'll stand at ease. Thank you, gentlemen.